0: themes of identity. And I want to start off and talk about this identity that we all wrestle with. And it's this identity that I'm not enough. Anybody familiar with that identity? I'm not enough? Oh, yeah. See some hands. Let me, let me tell you my first remembrance of this sense of identity that I'm not enough. Uh, I grew up in Houston, Texas. I'm a native Texan. And uh, and it's not true; they're not all tall down there like me. But the uh, uh, the neighborhood I grew up in was was rapidly growing, and so they were building schools and you know building homes. And so, in uh, first and second grade, I went to uh, I had to kind of take a bus a little bit of ways away to go to elementary school. And by the time third grade came along, they built an elementary school right behind my house. And so, I, in third grade, first day of school, I go in, and the teacher says. Okay, class, let's all tell everybody what happened. What did you do in the summer? You know? Did you go on a vacation and have an adventure? Did you, know, did you move here? And, of course, I didn't move there. And so you know, we went, all the kids, as, as, as everybody took turns, it came to me. And I stood up and I said, we got a new pool in our backyard. And, of course, now some of you have heard this story before. Of course, we didn't have a new pool in our backyard, <laughs> What happened was that summer, my dad had built this little kind of, uh, I think you, I, I think there's a, I forget the term for it, but it was sort of like a, a little pond with a fountain in the middle in our front yard. And it was about this deep. And my parents, you know, used to let me go out there and kind of play in it, because I'd have, I used to make models, and I, but somehow in my little mind, when I stood up in front of everybody, no one told me this, but I felt like, I don't have anything that happened, and all these other kids talked about. They'd been on vacation to Alaska, and they'd been in a sailboat out in the Gulf of Mexico. And I stood up, and I wasn't gonna say, "Yeah, my dad put this sucky little pond in our front yard, <laughs> right?" And everyone looks at it and goes, "What is this?" Because I mean, who did that? Where I grew up, just people just didn't do that. It was just a little middle-class neighborhood. I wasn't gonna say that, and I immediately felt like, "You're not enough." And out of my mouth, I didn't even. I'm telling you, I remember this. I remember as, the, as the, the kids' stories were winding their way back to me, just going, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And I had nothing in my mind. And I'm telling you, I got up and I prophesied a lie. <laughs> in the name of Jesus, I got a new pool. Now, this is the awkwardness of this moment. Imagine, you're in our, I'm in my classroom, and there's a big wall of windows. And it faced my street, okay? My street ran all the way down like this, and there was a middle school over here, and there was a high school, so my whole life I went, I just hopped the fence to go to school. Problem was, in third grade, my house was way down there, and the only person I knew that had a pool was right behind the school. Like, we could look out our window and see it. So what I had to do every day for a long time is, I came out of school, and I would walk over to that house that had the pool, and I would climb over the fence to make people think that was my house. And you think, you were really a messed up little kid. We're sad. We're happy you're much better now. But that was sad to have lived that little life, You know where you felt so bereft of meaning and purpose that you had to lie and then live like that. But, but all of us have stories like that, maybe not as dumb as mine, where you didn't feel enough and you acted like somebody else. The trouble is we grow up and we continue to do that because all the messages that we hear say you're only enough if, and then there's these measuring sticks of accomplishment, how you look, you know, your appearance, the clothes you wear, your education, the kind of career you have, the people you associate with, maybe the professional organizations that you're a part of the money you have the possessions you have you know your 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 bank account the total of your bank account there's all kinds of measuring sticks that we measure ourselves by and i don't care the sad thing is i don't care how how well you do in comparison to those you're going to run into people and circumstances they're going to tell you you're not enough you're still not enough you can move up that ladder of success and attainment and achieve things and you will not feel like you're enough. It's like your bucket that you're pouring things into has huge holes in it. And as fast as you pour the efforts to measure up into that bucket, it just as quickly measures out. Or maybe it doesn't pour out as quickly as you think, but it still eventually pours out, and you just don't feel like you measure up. And, and how do you know? It's a painful thing. It's a painful thing, and it, you can't shake it. And so people have two choices, they they think. This is the either-or that most people come up with, is I either got to try harder, (laughs) and some of us have a lot of tenacity, and so we just try harder. And those people are achievers. Those are people that continue to move up the ladder. And then there's people who just go, eh, I'm just going to muddle along. And I guess you could say there's people that just give up and wash out, but most people just go like, you know, i got to survive, so i got to just sort of muddle along. But... The people who are pouring everything into, if I do harder, if I work harder and I try harder and I do more, I'll feel better. They have the hope that they can quench that I'm not enough feeling. But the people that give up just live with it. And then they have to dull it somehow and numb it somehow. And that's, you know, you think, well, gosh, John, thanks for starting off the sermon. Just, you know, wow, you know, my New Year's resolution, I'm just, you know, I'm going right to the bar. That's my New Year's resolution. Right after, the, right after church, go to the bar. Well, I hope you don't say that. But I want to tell you something. There is, a, there is a, another way. And you go, oh, I know what you're going to say, John. It's the gospel. Because that's always the answer. Like, you know, in Sunday school, if you're in Sunday school, you could tell your kids this. If you're in Sunday school and they ask you a question you don't know, what's the answer? Jesus. That's right. It's always Jesus, isn't it? Whatever the answer is in Sunday school, when you ask a question, if you say Jesus, you're probably going to have the right answer or you'd be close. And, but the truth is, that's it. But what I want to tell you is Jesus was someone who lived with this same thing we do that he didn't measure up. Now, you may think, where's that in the Bible? Well, I want to show you where I think it is. And I don't think this is a stretch. And so if you could track with me, before we read this passage, I want to I want to just describe to you what probably many of us already know about Jesus' life. He was born in the Middle East to a Palestinian family, a Jewish family, a very, very working-class family. His dad was either a builder or a carpenter, which is you know roughly the same thing. Uh, his family had, had to travel, they'd been through lots of hardships. They'd lived in Egypt for a while. They lived in sort of the, the other side of the tracks, they lived in northern Israel which was considered sort of where the riffraff, ne'er-do-well kind of people lived. You know, you don't want to have to live there. That's the kind of place that has terrible schools, right? And rotting infrastructure and, uh, you know, strip clubs and everything. That was really where Jesus grew up. Plus, on top of it, Jesus didn't have advantages that that other people had. He had this stigma that hung over him because in, in Israel your family line was really important. But everyone knew that Jesus' mom had fooled around and got knocked up as a teenager, and then some knucklehead married her, and that shadow just was over Jesus' life. And in his community, being being that kind of person just puts you in a place that you are always, for the rest of your life, going to be behind the eight ball, you're going to be looked down at, that it sort of it put a glass ceiling of opportunity over your life. That there was only so far you could go because of that stigma. Jesus, when he came on the scene, the story we're going to read is where he, so to speak, comes on the public scene. And up to this point, he has no accomplishments. He has no education, no status, no money, no family, no professional Relations and organizations that he's considered a part of that would give him some status. He has no roles because, in that society, to be a, a, the head of a household was to have an important role. He wasn't the head of a household, he was just an older brother. There was nothing in his CV, his resume, that gave him any kind of status. And he was human. The Bible says he was God in the flesh, but he was human. The Bible says that Jesus was tired, he was hungry, he was frustrated, he was hurt, he was angry, he experienced all the human emotions that we do. So I promise you this weighed on him like it weighs on us that I'm not enough. Now that wasn't true, but your circumstances can exert just a constant drag on you, right? Everyone knows that. Jesus lived with this. And so, I want to read a passage where he comes on the scene. His public coming-out party was a baptism, which, again, is not like a 16-year-old debutante ball in New York City. If your coming-out party is a baptism, you're in trouble in Israel. That, that is not where you want to you know, make your bones and for everyone to find out who you are. But that's where Jesus came on the scene. And it all turned around pretty radically, pretty quickly, but it didn't start well. So if you have a Bible with you, I want you to open it up to Matthew chapter 3. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week, coincidentally. We're going to kind of go over it. We're going to read a couple of verses that we didn't read last week. And what you're going to, one of the things you're going to see out of this is the whole I'm not enough issue is not about measuring up. It's about Identity. You don't figure out and resolve the whole "I'm not enough" idea in your life unless you deal with the identity issue first. And when you when you nail identity, everything else starts to fall into place, or at least you become positioned for things to fall into place. So Matthew three thirteen, when Jesus came oh sorry then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now, again, the whole scene, we've talked about this, so I won't belabor it. If you haven't heard this before. I'm not going to go into a lengthy explanation of it, but the, John was baptizing people out in the desert on the Jordan River, right where the Jordan River went into the Red Sea. I'm, excuse me, the Dead Sea. The lowest place on earth, it's, it's a very beautiful, dramatic, harsh kind of a place, and John was preaching this message that said, the Messiah that we've all been waiting for is coming, but when he comes... He's going to come with salvation and judgment. And so if you've been messing up, you need to straighten up. You need to come and repent. And I'm going to baptize you for the forgiveness of your sins. So he was saying, baptism is, if you're coming to confess your sins, I will baptize you and your sins will be ceremonially forgiven because the Messiah is coming and he's coming with salvation. And John was right uh, to a degree. He wasn't right about timing. But all the people in Israel were, suddenly were divided, just like we're divided today, it seems like, in our country. They were divided between the people who said, we believe what John is preaching, and we need to repent, and the people who said, we're doing pretty good, thank you very much, we don't need John. But we're kind of curious, so we're going to go down and check it out. And so, in this scene, there's a river, John's standing in the river, and there's people who are up on the shore, and those people that are up on the shore have two mindsets. And I'll, I'm going to show you how this is, applies to us at the end. But they had the mindset of we're here to admit we don't measure up and that, that we've made a mess of our lives. And we're going to go and acknowledge that before God, to ourselves, and to everybody. And we're not playing any more games. And they were, go- they were there to go down into the river and to start trying to respond to whatever God wanted. And then there were other people who stayed up on the riverbank, and they were there sort of with their arms crossed kind of posture of, wow, it's so sad that these people are so morally bankrupt. I'm so thankful I'm not like them. You know, me and God are like this. And, uh, and, 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 and that may sound a little you know, self-righteous, but they, they didn't see themselves as being self-righteous. They just saw, compared to those people, I'm like a freaking saint because the tax collectors and the prostitutes and all the messed up people, the people that never went to, to the synagogue, the people like Jesus, you know, whose family came from that part of town. And it says, Jesus came to be baptized in verse 14, but John tried to deter him. In other words, he wanted to stop. It says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Now, this is an unusual thing. John knows who the Messiah is because God gave him this special gift. Now, here's the thing. I, I mentioned last week or the week before that John, was, was he was as famous and influential a person as there was in that whole period of history. And it's very rare for a person to reach a place of prominence and just almost universal respect and for them to say, you think... I've got something to say, and that you know that that I'm a, a kind of a person that you want to listen to. There's somebody coming along behind me, and this person is so great and so amazing that, like, in terms of where I'm at, I'm not even worthy to untie their sandals. I can't, you know, as they say, I, I couldn't carry his Bible for him. Now that's a, How many times do you hear someone who's who's reached a place of a prominence and influence be anything but Competitive with anybody else who, who kind of would come along and, and uh, suck some oxygen from the room. But J- John said, I came to point out who that is. So God gave me the special discernment to recognize who this Messiah was so I could tell all of you. So God gave him a gift to do something that most of us can't do. Because the, the, the sad truth is, because of our identities being. Placed in all the wrong things, when someone comes along and, and, and looks as good as us or better than us, we don't respond well to it. Because when it's about insecurity, when you're not secure in who you are, you're going to feel jealous, you're going to feel threatened, you're going to, you're going to feel ashamed, you're going to respond in ways that we all recognize, because we all do it. But John didn't. John saw Jesus and said, hold it, hold it, hold it. I'm supposed to be baptizing people, but I need you to baptize me. So John was perhaps the most moral person of his generation. But when Jesus walks up, who, who looks like he has nothing going for him, and that was a mistake for anyone to believe that, even for Jesus to believe it, if he was tempted to believe it, John looks at him and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I'm not baptizing you. You've got to baptize me. And Jesus says, no. Now he, he uses Look at this phrase he says. Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Now, Jesus does something. He says that all the predictions of the prophets that talked about the Messiah and the coming of righteousness and salvation, this is part of all that being fulfilled. And then John goes, Okay, huh, I get it. You know, I, I'm I've been trained to believe that. That God spoke through those those people, and that if you're saying that, I, I believe that you know you're 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 right. And he, oh, I'm sorry. I want to read this next verse, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, because baptism means being dunked, means to be immersed. That was what the Greek word meant. To, in fact, one of the words for you know in, in the baptism wars, which I'm not getting into them here, but. People wonder, how do you baptize people? Well, what baptism, the way that word was usually used in the ancient world was typically one of two ways. You took a garment and you dipped it into dye and you pulled it out, and the dye had immersed the fabric and changed the color. So, you know, white garment, blue dye, blue garment. Or a ship was baptized when it sank. And typically, it didn't come back up. When ships were baptized, it was like you know, the Titanic. They went down. So the word baptism had this uh, meaning. And so when Jesus came up out of the water, look what happened. Heaven was open. So something happened above him. There was an unusual sign of some sort. It didn't say anything else other than heaven was closed. And then because Jesus was baptized, heaven opened. And then from this open heaven... A physical representation of the Holy Spirit came down and rested on Jesus. And then a very deep, maybe, well, who's that actor? Who's that African-American actor who had the really deep voice? James Earl James Earl Jones said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, whom I love. Right? I can't even do it. My, my little soprano voice, I can't even mimic it. The Spirit of God descended like a dove and rested on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Before Jesus did anything, before he did anything. And this, this, Jesus said, was how, when he experienced that, this was part of how everything was going to be changed, how salvation was going to come, how righteousness and every kind of good thing was going to come out of Jesus and what he did to everybody or anybody that would, you know, welcome that. And so this, I want to use these little nesting dolls as an illustration. This is, this little nesting doll compares itself to this nesting doll and says, I'm not enough. <laughs> look how much bigger you are. When we look at life and we say, I don't measure up, there's always something we can look at externally or internally that confirms that statement and that experience. Life just tends to reaffirm that over and over and over and over that you don't measure up. And so Jesus came along. He was God in the flesh. He did measure up, but he he entered in to this real-life experience that we live. He carried that sense of I'm not enough around. He went into baptism, and, and baptism is about identification. He identified with us He came down to where all the sinners were going and he said, I'm not going to be, though I could be one of the people that stayed up on the shore and looked at everyone else and felt I'm better than them, I refuse to do that. I'm going to move into the water and I'm going to identify with everyone. And then he was going to live because at that point he was the perfect perfect person. And the history of Israel was, and the history of the earth is, God has a purpose for our lives and a mission, and we turn our backs on it, and we do what we want. And then we mess everything up, and God has to come in and just rescue us from it over and over and over. And that's what Israel was. And the very best, if you read the Old Testament, a way to read it is this. God kept looking for people who would be faithful to him. And he started with Adam and Eve, and they failed. He went on and on. Moses failed. Abraham failed. Isaac failed. Isaac failed. Jacob failed, Joseph failed, every person failed in some way. Even people like David, King David, who's a man after God's own heart, he failed. The prophets failed, the priests failed, the kings failed, everybody failed. And so then God came, and he became flesh and blood, and he lived a perfect life. He pleased his Father in every way, and then in our place, he died on the cross for our sins, in our place. Again, he identified with us at baptism, died on the cross, and he says, and then he ascended back to the Father, and he says, If you believe in me, and the public representation of our faith is being baptized, we're baptized into Jesus. He says, This. He says, You are put into me, you are united with me. What I have, you have. Where I carry this larger nesting doll, The other nesting dolls inside it, and there's a whole bunch of them, are carried with it wherever it goes. So Jesus, where's Jesus? He ascended the right hand of God and says, that's where you are now. And he says, if you believe in me, the Father says of you, this is my beloved child, who I love, with whom I'm well pleased. He says that about you when you're not behaving because of Jesus. And the, the truth is, the power of being in him when you're misbehaving, we'll begin to change you and work on you because you're united with him. You have been dipped into Jesus. and You've come out and you go, but I don't feel different. Well, the Bible says salvation has three tenses. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin and we will be saved from the presence of sin one day. And so in this present time, he's working into us this identity that we're beloved children of God. And that identity is what, and it's the only thing that will keep you from this freaking rat race that says you don't measure up because you don't have enough accomplishments, you don't have enough this. In church, you don't pray enough, you don't work enough in Sunday school. I'm sorry, Mel, I'm, 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 I'm undermining your, your, you know, your volunteer drive. All those things are good, but they don't, Help you measure up before God. So Jesus measured up, and he says, I give you my perfect life, and when you believe in me, you're put in me, and the relationship I have with the Father, you now have it. And I have people all the time. That just a, the simple, to me, the simplest illustration is people all the time call me and say, would you pray for me about this? And I have people say this all the time, because you just seem close to God. And I just laugh and go, if only you knew. I am not that close to God. But Jesus is, and I'm in Jesus, and because I'm in Jesus, I have access to the Father, but you do too. You do too. People still persist in saying, would you pray for me? And I ask other people to pray for me too because I believe in the prayers of the saints and the power of the prayers of the saints because there's a mystery of prayer too. But I don't believe that if I ask Jay to pray for me, he he gets heard by God because he's more righteous than me. I'm never confused about that one. No. No. And, I, and vice versa, me and Jay both go that, play that game. None of us measure up. It's because Jesus measured up that we have this favor from God. And the power of his life begins, that righteousness of his life begins to work in us and change us. It. It, but it's a process, isn't it? So what does this all have to do you know, for us and for not enough? Salvation is fundam- fundamentally about a new identity. It's fundamentally about a new identity. That's what Jesus gives us. Now, he gives us other things, too. But you can't experience it without that new identity. Now, some people will say that, isn't it true that Jesus was just a great teacher and a great example and a great model, and that if we follow his way of life, that you know, we'll, we'll realize our, our higher consciousness? No, that's not true. That's not what John the Baptist said. He wasn't just trying to sort of remodel the way we think about how life works and say, you know, humility and honesty and, you know, the equality of all people and the the universal fatherhood of God is, is available for all of us. John the Baptist didn't believe that. And when Jesus came along, he saw Jesus was different. He saw Jesus was unique, that Jesus was the only way that this could ever be experienced because Jesus wasn't just another person who stumbled across God consciousness and teaches us that way. It doesn't work that way. We aren't enough. We don't measure up. We have utterly failed. I mean, that's the, that's the flip side of this coin that we have to come to terms with. And, you know, last week I, w- I was talking to a friend of mine in, who, who's in a recovery, and it struck me, I, I forgot to say it last week, but, you know, when, when people have to stand up and say in an AA group, for example, Hi, I'm John, and I'm an alcoholic. A lot of Christians really get kind of tweaked by that, like, that's not your identity. No, that's true. But what they're saying is my life is out of control, and in order for me to begin to change, I have to admit that, that alcohol has kicked my butt, and if I don't have God's help and the help of other people, I will never change. And it's very hard to come to terms with that and be willing to admit, I've wrecked my life. I am the, as I like to say, I'm the the author of my own misery. It's hard to do that. That's what repentance is about. That's what John the Baptist was inviting everybody into. That's what Jesus was saying. If you ever want to reconcile with God, you have to come to terms with, you're the author of your own misery you have no one to blame but you. I don't mean that there aren't other people who contribute to problems that we have, but when I stand before God, I'm going to answer for what I did, no matter what they didn't do. And a lot of times in our lives, we have to come to terms and look at, like, I'm responsible for my own emotions. No matter what people do to me, I don't have to be subject to what they do to me. I don't. And the truth is, if they don't change, that doesn't mean I'm stuck forever, I'm going to be miserable. It's just not true. That's what forgiveness does. Forgiveness frees me from what other people do to me. And Jesus modeled that. He says it's this powerful thing. So the people who witnessed Jesus' baptism, they had a simple choice. Now, this is for people here who are already believers. Because the, the, the trouble with being a believer for a while is we have this memory of what we experienced when we first said yes to Jesus that starts fading. And the power of that moment where we came to terms with this I'm not enough. I need Jesus. He's the only one that's enough. I'm going to embrace him because that's the promise of the gospel. He'll give me a new identity. We forget that it's all about identity, and we start slipping back into the game of trying to measure up. I got to look better. Recently, I had, I had, uh, someone was going to drop by our house, and I thought, I got to, i got to clean up a little bit before these people come over, right? I can't have them walk in there. I can live in squalor, but I don't want anyone to know I live in squalor, right? Because what will they think of me? I'm a pastor. I shouldn't live in squalor. I'm exaggerating, but you get the point, right? And so I do some vacuuming and just clean up a little bit, and I'm thinking to myself, Don, you know, you still got remnants of the game. <laughs> You're playing. What does it matter, right? Part of it is about presenting. a a, a place for someone that you're inviting in as a guest, right? You know, just, you, yeah, come and and sit house. Hold on, you know, let me, oh, you sat on some gum. I'm so sorry, you know, I didn't clean it up before you came. Some of it's about, you know, being a good host, but some of it's about I want them to think well of me. Does it matter ultimately what they think of me? No, it matters what Jesus thinks of me. And the more I am plugged into that, The more I live out of the overflow of that, when people come over, I'm thinking about them and not me. Because see, part of that whole thing that was happening in me was I was thinking about me. And when my eyes are on me, and I'm not letting God keep his eyes on me and take care of me, then I'm not very other-oriented. And so, like I like to say, the Bible says we love because he first loved us. The more we're grounded in that love, the more loving we become. So, these people had a choice. Are they going to be a riverbank kind of person? Are we going to keep playing the game and finding our identity and what we do, what we own, how we look? Or are we going to continue, and are we going to continue to live life on our terms without re- surrendering the whole charade to Jesus and owning it and saying, I, I, I'm a terrible poser. I'm a born poser. I've chosen to be a poser. And without help, I'm going to be a poser my whole life. It is really hard to stand up and say, Hi, I'm John Lee, I'm a poser. But we all are on some level. Some of us are better posers than others, and we don't think we have to admit that. And we've so focused on posing that we've let it blind us. We've let it blind us, and then it corrupts us. And Jesus said, if you become like a child, you'll find real freedom. And children are just like, it's just all out there, right? Like, this, sometimes I'm over at different young families in our house, and one of the kids will just come running out bare naked, ah, you know, <laughs> just running around, just, ah, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, wasn't it cool when you, you just were that, like, unself conscious? <laughs> and I just think that's so much fun. I just think that's cool. That's the way of life. Now, I'm not advocating <laughs> public nudity here. <laughs> I always have to say that because there's this thing called email, and, and, and even people from outside, this little locale write people and say things about them if you don't correct it. So I want to get this on the record. But you, or you're going to be so are you going to be on the a river watching person or are you going to enter the river kind of person? And if you enter the river, you're admitting to God and yourself and your others you're not enough, and you're never going to be enough on your own. Do you want? It's painful. It's painful to say that. And will you put your faith in Jesus and what He did for you and the new idea? the new identity He gives you, that that He wants you to hear. This is one of the gifts of believing in Jesus and following Him, is that you can hear on a regular basis heaven's opening, the Spirit coming down, because the Spirit, among all of His titles, He's the Spirit of adoption. He's the one that, that lets us know we're loved by God, that He picked us out, He wanted us, that He knew everything about us. You know, that's part of the legal system, is... Parents have to disclose their health history now and all kinds of things that adoptive parents can, can understand who it is that they're adopting. But, but there, you never know who it is you're adopting, except God knows who it is he's adopting. He knows everything about us, and he still wants us. And he proved it by sending Jesus to pay the price, the adoptive price. But we get the Spirit to come, and then we get to hear if, if we incline ourselves and we stop trying to listen for the voice of other people to say things as substitutes for God's voice, if, if we just give up the game and chasing that approval of people, I mean, the desperation of it in our lives is amazing sometimes, isn't it? And even when we hear the Father's voice, we still will go back to the voice of people and say, please tell me who I am. And a few weeks ago, I was watching a movie, and I was going to watch a movie, and they had a a scene. And I think I mentioned this before. I mentioned it to a bunch of people, so forgive me if I if I repeat it. But in the trailers, there's a movie. Uh, there's a uh, movie coming out called Chappaquiddick, and it's about the life of Ted Kennedy. And of course, you know the whole the whole thing uh, where some, he drove his car into uh, the bay, and uh, a woman died. And the whole scandal of all that was playing. The whole movie's about that. But there's a scene in there where he is talking to his dad. And he says to his dad, Joseph Kennedy, I want to be a great man. I want to do great things. But I don't know who I am. I mean, just sit with that. Now, I don't know if, 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 if Teddy Kennedy ever said that. But it's a great line. But it's likely, there, it has some truth to it. But at that, he stands there, he's talking to his dad, His dad looks at him, and you think, what would your dad do? His dad slaps him. Whack! You wonder why he doesn't have an identity or why he's wondering what his identity is. Our Father in Heaven doesn't do that. His love and his voice and his spirit are what confer on you an identity, an unshakable identity that's better than any other identity. The truth is, if you have this identity as a beloved child of God that comes through Jesus... You have a potential to do incredible things, great things, things way beyond what you thought you were capable of, but you, you pursue them from a do- totally different perspective and a totally different sort of point of view and, and foundation in your life. Now, how much is that what drives you in your life, the sense of, I feel loved by God. I have an identity as a child of God. Is that kind of like, is that ever there is it there sometimes? Is it there a lot? Because I just want to, to close with prayer, and I, I, and I want to I invite everyone here, because I think it's probably something that's appropriate for every person that's here, just to pray a simple prayer with me. And then after that prayer, I want to pray for you, because I'm hoping you're responding with some you know sincerity to, to what God's offering you today. Because he's saying, I want you to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, in this moment that you're a beloved child of God that however you feel like you don't measure up and however much that's true i want to give you a foundation that you can base your life on and when people say what do you do <laughs> tell me who you are i always say i say i'm a beloved child of God before i say i'm a husband i'm a father i'm a pastor i'm a texan because that's always a big thing you have to grow up in texas to understand that but uh, and and on and on and on, all my loyalties, all the things that I glom onto, to find an identity—they are all now subvert, subservient to that, and second, or, or, or less, to the fact that I am a beloved child of God, and and you are too, if you are a follower of Jesus. But how much are you experiencing that? How much is it shaping the way you live with the fact that? Your sister is better looking than you. She did marry someone whose career is better than your husband's career. Your brother is loved by your parents more than you. All these things might be true. So freaking what? I don't mean it's not hurtful to, be, to have a sibling preferred to you. That is hurtful. But does it have to gnaw at you and control you and make you resentful? And do all the terrible things it does to you at work when someone's promoted that you should have gotten that job or, or you know whatever. Let's get out of that rat race. Right. Let's get out of it. But we have to get out of it over and over and over and over. I think that's my experience. I think most people it is if they're honest. So I want to ask you just to pray a prayer with me today. That's a prayer. It's sort of like the AA prayer. I am John. I'm a poser, John. I I'm I'm a needy person. I'm whatever. But it's just. It's just a prayer to say to God, myself, and other people, I've not measured up. But I believe that the answer is not trying harder if the answer is is turning to Jesus and receiving something from him that I don't deserve and an affirmation and a love and a power and, and an identity that no one can take away and that I can't lose by being stupid because I'm prone to that. I'm prone to be foolish and immature and self-centered. But Jesus says... If you invite me into your life, I'm going to finish what nobody else can start. And it's, it's, it, there's a tenderness that comes with this. I don't know if you're hearing it because, you know, I'm imperfect. But there's a tenderness in the invitation of your Father in Heaven to, through His Son, experience the love that He has for His Son as the love He has for you every day. That it's this, this. That you experience it. That it's, it's not just a cool idea. Like, I'm special. I know I'm special. I hope I'm special. Someone said I'm special, but you feel it. Feel it. You can wait. There are mornings, as you grow in it, you can wake up and feel it. Your first thought is, I'm loved, loved. I'm a beloved child of God. Even after a bad night, a night that maybe you regret, you wake up. I'm a beloved child of God. That, that draws you into something. It draws you into a way of life that, that trying will never take you. And, it's, and it, this is from grace, okay? It's grace. It's good news. So Paul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus, had to do what I'm asking you to do. He had an encounter with Jesus, and he was just stunned by it. He was an activist. He, he was an achiever. He was one of those people who just nailed it in every area of life. But when he met Jesus face-to-face in, in this public encounter, he was knocked off his horse. He was blinded. And everything in his life suddenly was up for grabs. Everything he was so sure of. Because it, it, politically and religiously, he, was, he had the bona fides. He had it down. He was on a crusade. And Jesus showed up and said, Paul, you've been running from the truth. You've been trying to make your life work when it never will that way. And I want you to go back into town and wait, and someone's going to tell you what to do. And Paul was the person who told everybody else what to do. And at this point, he was, his life was being rocked. Now, maybe you're not in, in that kind of a position, but uh, uh, where you feel like you've kind of got it together, and you, you're, your balloon has been punctured by some moment of humiliation. But that's what happened to this guy, and he went into this town, and he waited and prayed and said, oh, God, you know, nothing is happening. And this guy shows up who's like a nobody. God didn't send a real, real important person to talk to this really important person. He sent a nobody. His name was Ananias, and it says he was just a disciple. He was just a follower of Jesus. And he came in and he said, he said Saul, Jesus who appeared to you, before Saul told him any information, this guy was on a mission from God. He said, just like I am to you. And he said, Jesus who's appeared to you, who's kind of brought you this place of rethinking everything. I've come to pray for you that you may be healed and that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prayed for him. Scales fell off his eyes. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he got baptized. He had to go in public. He had to go out in public the way they did baptisms in the public back then. And he had to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. The guy who was trying to kill all the followers of Jesus, says, I have to become publicly a follower of Jesus. Do you see that? He had, to, he had to own something. He said, whatever I thought about my life and whatever I was proud of my life, it doesn't amount to anything in light of who he is and what he can give me. This Jesus that I rejected, this Jesus that, that I thought was a, you know a, a, a scoundrel and a liar and a cheat and a perverter of the truth. In fact, he wasn't. He was the God that... He thought he'd been worshiping his whole life. So why don't you stand with me? And, and uh, hey, the worship team, you guys come up? And we're going to close with this. I just want you to close your eyes. Now, if you don't want to pray this prayer, you don't have to. But if you could, I'd like you to pray this out loud. So I'll say a phrase, and then you can pray after me. And again, the words are not going to mean anything unless they're coming from your heart. Hopefully, they express a, a response to what I think God's inviting you into. So pray with me. Father in heaven, I admit to you and myself that I've been the author of my own misery. I foolishly lived life on my own terms. I've tried to measure up and failed. Right now, I turn from trying to measure up and be enough. I turn my whole life over to you. Jesus, I invite you to be the Lord of my life. I thank you for forgiving me of all my sins. I thank you for making me a beloved child of God. Fill my heart with the Holy Spirit so that I overflow. In Jesus' name, I ask this. Now, I just want you to keep your eyes closed, and, and if you're comfortable doing this, just hold your hands out. Hold them out. And in, in the media, we're going to sing that song, I'm No Longer Slave of Fear. In Jesus' name, right now, as you prayed and you responded to his invitation to you, just to lay down your efforts to measure up to trust in Jesus who loves you and pursues you and died for you and rose again for you and He sees the Father's right hand for you and that you are in Him and He's in you. Now I bless you right now. I bless you over your life that you would begin to know in a fresh way that there's an open heaven. Heaven is open above you. I bless you. Today.